Welcome to Yeah The Gals podcast, where I, Loz McGlynn, chat with epic everyday women who have paved their way to success in their space. We hope you feel inspired, motivated, and ready to listen to some honest and open conversations. Because gals, you bloody got these. episode of Yeah The Gals, I was joined by one incredibly impressive chick who is currently residing in Erbil, which for those of you who don't know, because I totally didn't, is in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Mali Tinek is a born and bred coastie who had many dreams and ideas of what her career could look like as she approached the end of high school. After choosing to study her communications degree, the wide-eyed Mali was offered multiple internships that led to her accepting a full-time position at the end of her first year of uni, something that she managed to do all while still studying full-time too. To keep things interesting, she decided to start freelance writing in her not-so-spare time, and before she knew it, she was on a flight to New York to try her luck in the big smoke. From New York back to Australia, completing a master's in HR, This gal did not think she would then be heading to Geneva in Switzerland to work for the United Nations, but she did. With many twists, turns and amazing experiences, Marley is currently working as a communications specialist for the Seed Foundation, which is a women-led non-for-profit organization in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. As you can imagine, we had a lot to talk about but can absolutely say we also barely scratched the surface. One thing that really stood out for me is that although Marley lent on the amazing support systems, mentors, and women who inspired her throughout her career, it is ultimately her dedication, work ethic, and willingness to give even the craziest of ideas a go that has been the catalyst to all her successes and achievements. Marley. Hi Lauren, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, how are you? Pretty well, just waking up, getting started. Yeah, I usually start off the podcast by saying who is Marley and what do you do, but I might actually start with who is Marley and where are you right now? I'm actually sitting on my floor couch, which is in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Wow, and it's 7am <laughs> over there at the moment, sorry, 8am? Yeah, just gone past 8am. So many questions to get to how does a gal end up in Iraq? Yeah, little Marley definitely did not anticipate that at 31, this is where I would be sitting. <laughs> I had many dreams. Um, I think at one point I wanted to be a firefighter. At another point I wanted to be a lawyer. So you graduated high school in 2009? Yes. Yeah. And then... You were getting to the end of high school and you're like, don't know what I want to do. I feel like the pressure at the end of high school, you have to decide before your exams are done. I have to do well enough to qualify for this course that I think you read through all these catalogs or whatever. I don't know, particularly at my school where I was up against some incredibly stupidly smart people. Because you were at a selective school as well, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, and it humbles you because you just, you I guess, I, in my family at least, always tried to wave the flag. I was like, I'm the smart one, being one of three. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very humbling to go to that school and then be around people that are getting 99.1s in yeah. their final score. I think that's quite interesting because who you're surrounded by can be really empowering, but it can also be like quite intimidating because you go, wow, these people are doing so well. And something that, like, you know, me personally, when I was finishing year 12, I did not know what I wanted to do and I chose not to go to uni for that exact reason because I was like oh my god so much pressure to then pick a career out of a catalogue and go to uni and start this life that I don't even know if that's what I want to do but it is interesting it's important at that time in your life to make a choice and go down a path you can't just do year 12 forever so you chose communications and got into the course yeah so I applied for scholarships with the military and aeronautical engineering and then communication. And I was like, my school will decide that. Whatever I get, I'll figure it out. But it's scary to think you're putting yourself in debt to go and study something you're not 100% sure of. But I figured it was pretty broad and that it was applicable in in many 
potential careers. I had big dreams of maybe being a journalist, but then I thought working in private sector or in any field that requires communications, public relations. So I jumped in and I think similarly, that idea of pressure and support, I met some amazing people at university and we formed our little university bubble and we supported each other through it. And we now actually all have incredibly different career paths. So we all studied communications and we all went in vastly different directions. When you started your degree, did you enjoy it from the start? Look, I don't know anyone personally that actually uses more than maybe 20% of what they learned at university in real life. So again, looking back on that, you're like, I put myself into hex debt, into government debt to learn Freudian theory, which on a daily basis, I'm not processing this kind of information or thinking through this. When you do those tertiary studies, it's, I think it's more about forcing yourself to apply yourself to something, yeah. going through the pain of doing it. My husband's a high school teacher and I tell him all the time, who uses algebra when you finish school? Can, couldn't other someone have taught teachers. me how to, other school teachers, can <laughs> someone teach me how to do my taxes? Can someone teach me how to get car insurance? Would have loved that before I went out into the world. But again, I think it's just the whole, like the disciplinary side of things and challenging your thought process and that sort of stuff. Yeah, very interesting. And so the internship that you started while you were studying, was that a part of doing your degree to do an internship or did you do that like by yourself because you wanted to? My lecturers probably wouldn't love to hear, but I actually was already working full-time when I was supposed to be doing a mandatory internship. So I did falsify some paperwork, but I don't think (laughs) they're going to take my degree away for that. I started out in Sydney somehow, thanks to other amazing women who originate from the Central Coast, Eleanor Hilton and Chloe Brinklow, and I owe them a lot for giving me a chance. I was connected to a couple of internships. In yeah. Style Magazine and then at, at Max Ted Thomas, jumped in, started working in beauty, lifestyle and fashion, which is obviously not where I am now, and yeah. just gave it a go. In my first year of uni, finished and I got offered a full-time job to yeah. work in PR. So I somehow managed, looking back, not sure how, somehow managed yeah. to work full-time and study full-time. I did have some incredible experiences. and. That world, working in Australian fashion and lifestyle media, I worked in the fashion closet and it was wild. You'd go to fashion shoots, you'd have the fashion of the beauty editors coming in and looking through clothes and getting ready for these big events. And initially when you're new, part of your job is sorting things and preparing yeah. things for photo shoots. But yeah. I was lucky that I knew Eleanor and Chloe, who at the time, I believe Eleanor was beauty editor, Chloe might have been beauty assistant, something like that. Was that, a bit com- was that a bit comforting to have people that you knew working within the business that you could lean on? Definitely. It meant on the first day you weren't walking in and not knowing a face there. You could at least have a friendly face. And if you weren't sure of something and you didn't want to seem silly or stupid, you could go and ask someone that you knew. And I think that's yeah. what we forget is you do find mentors in life. And sometimes it can be hard, but every single person that is where they are has had to hustle. Yeah. And has felt exactly the same as you in one way at some point in their career. Yeah, no, that was, it was fantastic to be able to have that opportunity to work with them. And that set me off on a very distinct path for the first sort of five years of my career working in beauty and style. Where did you go from there, from that internship? So at the end of my first year, I was going into my second year of university and I, just done a couple months interning at it, it's no longer Max Ted Thomas PR. They have a different name now, different ownership. But at the time, Max Ted Thomas PR, um, which is again beauty and lifestyle. And this one at Chloe actually had been working with them. And she mentioned to them, Hey, I know the owner of this company and they're fantastic. They're looking for interns. Would you want to intern there? Intern kind of rolled into one of their staff members going on a long leave. And they were like, would you want to cover her while she's away? Um, so I got introduced and I started there and then went into a paid position. And when that sort of short-term cover ended, they just said, really like you. And would you want to come on board full-time as the account coordinator? 
And so basically I would go to uni when I needed to go to uni and then going from the city to Edgecliff every day and working as account coordinator and ended up being with that company six years total. So it was a lot of fancy events, promoting skincare, beauty brands. We did hair care. It was not what I ever thought I would have been doing, but I fell into this team that were just so supportive and so willing to help me grow as a professional Mm. that I just was like, well, I have to go with this, this opportunity is to pass up. What's really standing out to me, like even just from the couple of things that you've been saying is like, you are just all in. Do you think having such a strong work ethic is a part of the reason why you were able to progress so naturally? Yeah, I actually, listening to, I think your first episode with Maz, I think it was something she brought up as well, just that work ethic that came from her parents. I don't know if it's distinctly generational thing being from the central coast there's actually a lot of that I think around the people that I went to school with primary school high school again I don't know if it's generational geographic what have you but I do think it's been instilled in us from a young age many of us from a young age that things don't just get handed to you you do have to work for them there's always a bit of luck but generally speaking you know being willing to take opportunities as they come has been luck and hard work. And then tell me a bit about your freelance writing gigs that you started to look for. So uni, working full-time, low-key decided that you would do some freelance writing gigs as well. I think I was at a point in my life where I was so unsure exactly what I wanted to do and I had the energy because, again, this was – 10 years ago. So I was like, I could do all these things and never sleep. Getting a full-time writing gig is next to impossible. Getting freelance writing gig was like 5,000 emails just to get one response. So I kind of just had to find someone that was willing to let me even try because until you have a portfolio of published content, they're not going to listen to you because you're not a name. So I, I started kind of looking around for what potential opportunities I could have. I thought, well, having a portfolio can't be a bad thing, something to lean on. If I do leave corporate, commercial, public relations, it just was, yeah, it was a lot of emails. And then thankfully managed to speak to one of the associate editors at The Collective. It was a magazine that was mostly focusing on lifestyle, entrepreneurship, and just what was happening in Australia, working for that magazine where they were all about breaking the rules without sounding too cliche. And then after the first piece that I got published, and I remember being so incredibly excited when I opened the magazine and my two-page editorial was there. What was the article? I'd written about, it's a company in New York City that's like a collective for small jewellery brands called Catbird Collective. And I was obsessed because... I'm obsessed with jewellery and that's not a good thing for someone who quite frequently loses jewellery. It was a two-page on that and just looking at their model because they were doing things differently. They were providing a space, a physical space and a platform for these brands that otherwise wouldn't have had the kind of visibility that they had. So it was a new approach to brand collectives. And so that was my first written piece. And yeah, opening the magazine, I was just like, this is so weird. There was a point where I was getting home from work and doing freelance writing. And I used to use like, I don't know if they exist anymore, but these platforms where you can put your CV up and then companies could hire you and it's by the hour. So I'd come home, I'd be tasked with writing an article about foreign exchange, which I knew nothing about, but I had to be convincing. So I'd write that article and then a couple hours later, I'd have an interview online with someone and then I'd transcribe the interview and then I'd write the piece. But I was truly very passionate. I loved learning about what other people were doing and then trying to it in a way that represented them, I guess, what you're doing, trying to share these kinds of messages with the world and just finding unique stories. Because I, I got yeah. to speak to weird and wonderful people doing incredibly cool things through doing that freelance. How old were you then? My first article, probably I would have been 22. Wow. Yeah. That's 22. amazing. That's, I just, again, I will say it again. You were like uni, multiple internships, working multiple jobs, 
then deciding to do freelancing, managing a social life, but you were 22. That is incredible. Like there was something that was sparked in you that was like, oh, I love this. And then that partnered with having a really strong work ethic and no sleep and probably living off caffeine. Wow. How cool to say that you had done that. What happened next? Like, where did you go? Like that article was published. What was next? Yeah, I think I, I just had something to prove. I don't know. I just trying to, to wave some kind of flag to be st- standing out as something different. My, my therapist, love my therapist. She would say that I've just always identified as a black sheep, self-identified. So it's mm. not like anyone's putting me in that box, but it's like at a, a sort of a young age, I just decided I don't fit here. So now I have to prove to everyone I can do everything, which I yeah. don't recommend. I don't think it's healthy, but I do think, <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's, um, it's important to explore things. And so, yeah. you know, my next opportunity I got contacted or this company based out of New York City contacted me and were like, would you want to write for us? So I started doing freelance content for them. And then at some point the co-founders contacted me and were like, would you want to come to New York City? And I was like, is this real? Like, is this some kind of spam? Yeah. I was like, Are you sure you're talking to the right person because I'm 23 and I just don't feel like I have the skills that you need. Yeah. And they were like, no, 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 we love your writing. We think you'd be great. And then also to just be like, can I even afford, at 23, I'm like, can I afford to move into New York City? Like, how is this feasible? They managed all of the visa stuff and were like, you'll get here. We'll have somewhere for you to stay. It will be sorted out. So I, yeah, I jumped on a plane to New York City. I was terrified. And I sat next to a woman who was equally terrified. But in hindsight, I think I was more terrified for her, thankfully, which helped a lot. She'd met a guy online and, it, and oh. she was from Sydney and she was going to Texas to meet him for the first time. Wow. <laughs> what a story. You're like, yeah, cool. I'm moving to New York for a job. That's not just like a Tinder in a 25K radius. That is huge. They met because they both were into, I'm not a car person. They're both into hot rods. So they wow. met in some like club online. But I just remember we were both so nervous. We were crying together on the plane. <laughs> and, we, and that was like our bonding moment. So for the rest of the flight to LAX and then to New York, I jumped on to New York. She went to Texas. Just like calming ourselves because we were both so freaked out. You I mean, knew I, no one. Like you knew no one going to New York. So I did actually have two friends. Similarly, one did move there after a big breakup and needed to find herself. And now... She's a mom. She's living in upstate New York. She's doing an incredible job of just being a wonderful human being. I love her to pieces. That's Haley. And then another friend of mine who moved there for love, Jackie, who's also still there. So I did know that when I arrived, I wasn't going to be completely on my own. But it's a scary city. It's one of the most intimidating places I've ever been. I lived in a loft, which is a loose term for converted warehouse with not great kind of infrastructure I don't know like it's the walls don't look like they're fully gonna withstand a strong wind so it's it was cave at any minute literally two lovely girls who were students at Parsons the fashion college but literally lived off Adderall they'd come home from university and then they'd go DJ. They're both DJs, I think, again, some kind of weird cliche of these New Yorkers. And then they'd get home at 5 a.m. and they'd start studying and they'd just be popping. I don't know, what do we call Adderall in Australia? Like ADHD medication. I was going to say no-dose, but that, that's a very no, this, probably a PG version. You know, they, they barely slept, you know, and I'd come home and I remember coming home one day from work and they had decided it was pre-Halloween so I'd have a pumpkin carving party. So I come home, the entire apartment is tarpaulins covering all the walls and there is literally pumpkin guts everywhere. And then all these drunk people with large knives, which was quite concerning, carving these pumpkins. Of course, we don't really do Halloween in Australia. So this was already a new thing for me. But then to have 25 kind of very jacked up, crazed New Yorkers in my apartment carving pumpkins, I was like, what is happening? 
That is more than just a transitional period. That is really quite frightening for a number of reasons. Memories, like that's like a core memory, I'm sure. But wow, that is insane. And was like, is there like a bit of a cultural difference between Australians and New Yorkers? I've got this preconceived idea of Americans being a little bit arrogant, but then you've got like different areas of America. And so New York, yeah, what was that like? New Yorkers, I think, are probably very hardworking people, but being an Australian, and I think this applies no matter where you go around the world, you could be in Sydney, and Sydney siders, people that are born and bred in Sydney or in Melbourne or whatever, they're a bit different to those of us that come from smaller areas like (laughs) urban or rural Australia. You used to make eye contact and you say, hey, how are you going? And that's still in me, like, Having not lived at home, I'm still like, if I make eye contact, I'm going to say, hey, what's up? New Yorkers do not want you to communicate with them. They're going where they're going and they don't have any time to be bothered by you. So it's a very cutthroat environment. I met some incredible people. One of my good friends while I was there was from Boston. Another was from Jersey. And they're not like New Yorkers. I do think in America, though, they are raised to be a little bit more forthright about great they are and I don't want to say that's a bad thing because I think it's good to walk into a room and say I'm awesome but it's not the way that we learn to do things Mm. I think Australians are humble and so when I first arrived I think I'd been there a little maybe a couple weeks my boss said to me Australians are just such hard workers they just get it done and I was like that's because most of the day when you when I looked at my other staff was spent going on networking meetings they'd go meet this brand or that brand or this company or this representative and have a lot of coffee or even sometimes wine and and talk about how great they are and sell themselves. And that's just not natural, I don't think, in Australia. Mm. And so even though I wasn't out there selling myself and I wasn't hustling in the same way a lot of New Yorker or American colleagues were, I think they still saw, obviously, I was delivering and I was doing um, what I could. Yeah, it was an interesting adjustment in that sense. Yeah. couldn't adjust. I, there's no way that I could adopt that approach. So yeah. I just continued operating as I was operating. Yeah, um, you were probably yeah. subconsciously learning bits and pieces from that. But I, I, I truly believe you, you, if you steer away from being anything but yourself and just slowly learning along the way, like it comes across disingenuine. Like you aren't, you're not your authentic self. It feels a bit awkward. And obviously, who you are is made you while you are so successful as well you don't always have to adjust to your environment because that's what everyone else is doing which is pretty cool pumpkin slashing aside and crazed roommates and a really poor infrastructure living environment what was the actual job like when you first started like how did you find that side of thing I was basically switching sides so I went from working on the brand side to being one of the journalists so At first, I was producing content. A lot of it was beauty. So a lot of it was putting stories together based on trialing new products or looking at latest trends or speaking to doctors and artists about what they do. And so that was really cool. And so I got to do a lot of really exploratory stuff. Um, I went and got, and me and another colleague went and got fully hennaed by this woman based deep in Brooklyn. We did a piece on the trend of having henna art done in the US, which wasn't typically what people were doing. I dyed my hair gray because that was cool back then. I think there was a period like legitimately of was a fashion thing. Yeah. And it was really hard. As you can see, I have incredibly dark hair. Yeah, I spent oh. around nine hours in the salon chair. It was free because I was a journalist, but I probably wouldn't do it again. Wouldn't recommend. It wasn't my best look mm-hmm. and it took a really long time to get rid of it. So... It, it stayed with me. Yeah, <laughs> anything goes in that role from by the sounds of things. How long were you doing that job for? So I was working remote initially while I was waiting on my visa and then I ended up being in New York just under a year. I think it was 2014. How many years ago? A long time ago yeah. now. Oh, my God, nine years ago. And it just, in terms of the way that my life was whilst I was there, um, yeah, it wasn't Carrie Bradshaw. I wasn't like, yeah. it was fun and there was all these crazy things happening, but I wasn't Carrie Bradshaw. I wasn't doing what I thought I would be doing when I initially accepted the role. Did you make the decision 
to come home or did your career continue to progress in a different direction after that year? It was a little bit of a, like, it was a difficult time because I felt like I'd failed because New York wasn't what I wanted it to be, which had Mm. nothing to do with me as a person, everything to do with just the stars not aligning in a sense. I think it's worth trying things, but it's also really important to acknowledge that not everything always works out the way that you expect. I did look for alternatives. I was like, hey, maybe, you know, I'll see if I want to go back into PR. And I interviewed with some PR firms there. I actually interviewed at, at the time, the brand new open Freedom Towers, which replaced the Twin Towers after 9-11, went into the Freedom Tower and interviewed for the fashion closet at Vogue and almost collapsed when Anna Wintour walked past me. But Vogue paid around, I think I would have walked away with around $12,000 a year because they don't have minimum wage in the US. And I was like, who legitimately can take these jobs? I remember speaking to the, I think she was the fashion office manager, and she was like, "Mm, mostly trust fund babies. And I was like, I don't have one of those, so I will not be able to accept this job. That is crazy. Is brutal. I was like, there's $1,000 a month won't cover rent. Meeting people in New York, they live in these apartments, and it's so expensive and so difficult. They, like, three girls will live in one apartment, and they divvy up the room with bookcases. I'm like, how do you have any privacy? And they just, they don't. That's just how they live because they so badly want to be there. And I think for me, that was it. It was like, I think it's cool and New York is great, but I shouldn't have to live like this. I shouldn't have to feel like every day is a struggle, not only in terms of like where I'm living and the expenses, but also just in terms of like my level of comfort and having my space and feeling at ease. And so I... Yeah, it was hard, but I made the decision to come back to Australia and to figure out what I wanted to do. I was coming home to process and figure out my next reset. Yeah, like a reset. That's huge. Like that, that is so true. Like your job is important, but if everything else around you is not there, the infrastructure, like you literally had no infrastructure where you were living, then like the juice might not necessarily be worth the squeeze. So it's, yeah, sounds like it was needed to come back and how good to have that experience. I'm sure you look back and go, yeah, shit, fully dyed my hair gray for a hot second there. But yeah, Yeah. so cool. Wow. And so then back in Australia, what was next? My family at Max to Thomas PR welcomes me back with open arms. So I wasn't without a job. And so I had financial security while I figured out what it was that I was going to do next. And that's when I really just pivoted away from everything that I'd done for the previous years in my professional career. I decided to do my master's, so I didn't know what to do it in. So I decided to do it in HR. My sister was in HR at the time, and I thought, those are valuable skills to have. Why not? I've never worked in HR, so I did it, and I think I learned some things from it. But partway through that master's, I was still at Max Ted, I randomly started applying to a lot of different places. So I went back, reapplied to the military, did my exams, went through the full physical. And the way they enroll people in the military, basically you say what you want to do. And if that position's available, they call you up. The job I wanted, there was only two people in Australia doing it. And when I did my test, they were like, you could do anything. And I was like, no, I want that one job. And they were like, okay, so wait and see. Then I applied for ASIO because I thought, now, in hindsight, I cannot, like, I talk too much. There's no way I'd be very good at being an intelligent. Everyone would know everything. But I applied yeah. there. And then I applied to the UN. And then I got a call up from um, who ended up being my first supervisor in Geneva, in Switzerland. And again, it was a, is this a real moment? Surely they don't want me. I have weird experience. I've never worked in uh, the NGO space or not-for-profit. So like, why do you want me? And I remember in my interview, my boss was just like, I feel like you have an edge because you do bring something different, you know, to the communication space because you've worked in private sector up until this point. She went out on a limb, someone that didn't have any experience and she hired me. And then I ended up being with her for around six months in Geneva, working with United Nations Development Program. And we launched like this initiative to basically it's an accelerator initiative for startups in developing countries. And then she connected me with the person that became my second supervisor and ended up taking my first 
I won't even go into the complexity of how the UN system works in terms of positions, but I took my first formal position with the UN after that. And I ended up working with the International Labor Organization. And I did that for two years and I was working in different roles in communications. And when you say communications, like what, like a day to day, like the day to day, what does that sort of look like at that point in your career? So UNDP was broad communications in Switzerland is where they have the liaison office for wider Europe. And so we were responsible for engaging with the media in that part of the world. We were responsible for engaging in the ecosystem in Geneva, which is mostly financial. So basically getting finance firms, investing in small initiatives that either contribute environmentally, socially, or what have you to the society in which they're in. Communications is a broad umbrella term because a day at the office is so different. Yeah. Um, Two questions from this. Okay. First of all, moved to Switzerland. How was that moving countries again? Did you know anyone when you were going over to Geneva? My supervisor connected me to another Australian that was working in the office at that time. And she, bless her soul, she sent me the most detailed guide to Switzerland. She supported me so much when I first arrived and we became very good friends and we are still dear friends to this day. She's doing kick-ass stuff for women's menstrual health in Fiji at the moment. Love her to pieces. She's a Newcastle women. Seriously, I'm just like mind blown. Even the roles that are out there, I'm like, wow, just amazing. The best thing about what I've experienced is some of the people that I've met. Emily Mm -hmm. J, insane. She's just done such cool stuff. So she supported me so much from the outset. She created like a sense of home when I got there. Quickly, I managed to meet, you know, um, a few people through my office and I bonded really well with my boss. So Switzerland was not as jarring as New York was to me. I think the people that I bonded with and I connected with really to this day, they're still people that I talk to regularly and they're part of a big, broader support system and we support one another. And that happens, I think, when you move a lot and go to different countries, you develop relationships that in normal circumstances would take years. Can you confirm that your living environment was better than New York? 100%. 100%. I did have some nightmare roommates, but the walls were very sturdy. It was a beautiful apartment. I loved that apartment. I stayed in the same apartment the entire time that I was in Geneva and I had many roommates, some of which I'd like to forget, some of which are dear friends. You just, you never know until you live with someone, right? And this might sound like dumb, but is the UM a bit similar to say like in Australia, like we have the council, for example. And once you're in, there are so many different roles and directions that you can go, but it's like getting in is the hard part. And then once you're there, you can segue into different parts of the yeah. organization. Yeah. No, I get what you mean. I think it definitely, once you're in, it is a lot easier to move around, <laughs> partly because of their kind of recruitment structure, because it makes internal movements a lot easier but partly also because you you start knowing people. And so people will reach out to you and say, this position is available. I'd love for you to apply. Or do you want to do this maternity cover? Do you want to do that? So again, it's it comes with the network. It also comes with knowing how the system works because the United Nations is a very large beast, but it's when you've got tens of thousands of people working in the United Nations across the world, you can imagine the bureaucracy level is very high. It's centralized and complex and they're managing so yeah. many people. So once it was in, it did make interagency movement or intra-agency movement a lot easier. Um, yeah. And as I said, the supervisors I had in Geneva, Sarah, Michael and Adam are some of the best people. Again, I still talk to all of them today. They were super supportive and whenever they thought there was an opportunity that I should jump at available, they'd tell me whether it was to their detriment or not, you know, because mm-hmm. they valued my career growth and my personal growth. They're the ones that then have to find someone to fill that position. Yeah. So they were putting themselves on the back foot, but supporting me was their priority. And I think, yeah, that shows the sign of an incredibly good manager. Yeah, absolutely. And you were working in multiple roles. Over what period of time were you in that organization 
before. And another question, what, what did you love doing in those roles? So I, w- I was in Geneva for almost three years. Yeah. And throughout that time, I think I did about two years with ILO and a year and a half UNDP. There was a period where I had an overlap and I was managing both jobs with both agencies, but, and I was still freelance writing at that time. Again, I was like, still. <laughs> nothing surprises me with what no. you're saying. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> So I was juggling a lot, but I think it was for me the opportunity to learn about communications across a really broad subset of topics. So international labor organization, I now know so much more than I ever thought I would know about international labor law, which sounds boring, but it is actually super interesting. I got to work on campaigns around ending human slavery. I got to support programs that are around building HR capacity for small businesses in Indonesia. It's so broad. And I think the thing about the UN is, and it's different to, I guess, working in the private sector was you get to see these real human stories of what these institutions and their partners are capable of doing. And that's gave me the opportunity to dive into writing in a different way. So instead yeah. of my free stuff where I was really searching for these stories, it then became a part of my job to be able to look at individual stories and the impact that these things were having on people and talk about them. I then did the Central African Forest Initiative, which was a totally different ball game. So I learned a lot about the situation in Congo and the Central African Forest. And then I did, yeah, I think they were the main kind of areas. And then as I was working through these, these things, I kind of was just like, I want to do something around, I don't think at that time I would have said humanitarian development. I think that's now become ingrained in me to use mm. those terms because it's my, been my job for so long. I did want to do something with people more yeah. than with grants. Again, like I think that I learned a lot working in the private sector and I brought new information into working in the um, in humanitarian development. But it was just like, okay, I like doing this stuff that at the end of the day, when I go home, I feel like a bit more purpose. It's just, it really shifted and changed for me when I started doing this new work. From what you're saying, you got so much insight into the impact that a role can have on something really purposeful. People don't get the opportunity to have as much insight into the world that you probably have gotten through working for the United Nations. So you did all of those projects based from Geneva for different countries. So like the hub was at Geneva and you guys did. Like how does one segue from Indonesia to a project in Africa? Do you guys do a whip in the morning where you sit down and you go, all right, guys, we've got Africa, we've got Indonesia. Is it like that? It's just like for someone that has no, absolutely no insight, that is just incredible. Like, how does that even come about? I think part of it is because the structure of the UN, we have incredible teams in those countries. So they like on the ground, they're doing the work. And mm-hmm. then kind of the headquarters offices, where like the coordinators and the, the ones that engage at the high level with the donors, like the governments and with other UN agencies and coordinate all of that sort of stuff. So we were working more in the clouds, figuring things out while we had these teams on the ground. And one of my projects with the ILO, we had 12 countries. I might be talking to someone in Colombia or Bolivia one day, but then someone in Indonesia and then someone in Ghana. And luckily, while I was there, we had the opportunity and we brought all of the country reps together and we all met in the North Italy and it was super cool to meet them. So I had the opportunity to learn from them, not only about the context, work that we do, but you know, about who they are and their culture and that sort of stuff. And again, I still have contact with so many of them as well. And that, yeah, that kind of opens your mind. I'm no specialist on any one of those 12 countries, but I learned a lot about what goes on there and how things operate. So I feel like I wouldn't be in shock if I landed myself in Indonesia and started working in programs there. What was next? That's when you started thinking about going into non-for-profit? No. So I was in Geneva when one day I got a message from a recruiter for UNDP in Iraq offering for me to come here. I think every time I get these, like someone reaches out to me like this, I'm just like, is this real? Like, am I going to get to Iraq and I don't know what's going to happen? And of course, like the perception of Iraq in Australia is hugely misrepresentation of the country Mm. and its people and what goes on here. 
there's, and that's because we only get exposed to what the news shows us. And it's also just not as scary as people think in no way. Yeah. Like I have a very normal life. People are usually surprised, but I have a very normal life here. I it's much know. It's much like when people have a perception of Australia that there's just like crocodiles that sleep on our back decks every night and you like are just fighting snakes for your car in the morning before work. So you're right. We only know as much as the media and the news tell us. Um, but being having only the insight that you had to then make the decision to go to Iraq, where you were initially quite scared. Totally. There was tears. Yeah. There was like, I can't pass up this opportunity. It's so amazing, but I'm terrified. Yeah. Um, I really lent into my people in Geneva and I did a lot of pros and cons lists and I had a lot of long late night conversations with a lot of my dear friends there. And they were scared for me too, because they were just like, holy dooly, like Iraq, you know, unless you've been there, you truly don't know. So yeah, I've got a little bit put at ease after interviews and conversations, but was just like, why the heck not? I was 26. I was like, just do it. What's the worst that can happen? You just decide you don't like it. So yeah, I flew in on a very warm September day. So I landed thinking September can't be that hot. Surely anyone in their right mind would check the weather. Arrived, it was dusty, everything was brown, and I was schwitzing, like no tomorrow. It was so hot. (laughs) She's warm outside. Picked up and taken to the office to sign some paperwork and then later on to temporary accommodation while I settled in and I was just like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Where am I? What is going on? I don't speak Arabic. I don't speak Kurdish. Like. Holy, and it, I literally was just like lying in bed being like, this is insane. What have I done? Did you know anyone? I know I've asked that for every country that you've moved to, but. The hiring manager. So I I only knew the people called me and contacted me for the position. I got, again, through mutual friends, someone connected me with someone and I got to ask all the dumb questions, which people don't say, I don't say dumb because people still ask them to me and I ask them like, how do you dress? What? What do I need to bring in? Can you buy sort of shampoo and conditioner there? Like you just, you don't know. You're yeah. going into it. You're like you Google maps it. And so she gave me a little bit of background and was like, no, it's fine. Just wear long pants and a T-shirt and you'll be okay. And that became very obvious very soon that where I live in Iraq, in Erbil, is it's a, it's a normal city. It gets very hot. That's something that is quite unbearable. But in the spring here, which we're just having now, like everything is green. And in the north of Iraq, it's all mountain. It's incredible hiking. It's stunningly beautiful waterfalls and rivers. And yeah, you just, you have no idea when you're coming into it. So it only took a few months. I luckily had some amazing people on my team, friended very quickly. They took me under their wing and they showed me where to go grocery shopping and took me out to restaurants and been brought me into their little bubble and yeah, it didn't take a long time to first adjust um, and then made some incredibly good friends that I still have today, Kurdish friends, friend, Arab friends from Iraq and also expat friends. So yeah, it was a terrifying, what a whirlwind. but ultimately yeah. an incredibly positive one. And yeah. now it feels like my home. I love it here. I have amazing have friends. You been there, have you been there since you took the role? Okay. I did years and then as COVID broke I was offered a position to go join the Yemen office and I went between my current supervisor here and the supervisor there negotiating but ultimately decided to give Yemen a shot but at the time with COVID had to go to Jordan and hang out in Jordan because we couldn't travel into Yemen and that was a weird time to be changing jobs because COVID was where and traveling was horrible did you ever think about coming home at that point? Or was it always, no, this is home right now during I that really did period? I really did that decision because with Australia's policies at that time, if I'd gone home, first I had to apply to get a seat on a plane to return and then I would have had to have apply to get on a seat to get out mm-hmm. or else I had to stay. And my work is in the Middle East and so I just thought there's no way I want to be working Middle East hours on an Australian time zone. Like yeah, I just, sure. I would be dead. I couldn't deal with that. So I decided it would be better to stay. A lot of people did leave, go home to the States, to Australia, wherever and work remotely. But I just was like, I just know myself and I'm not, mm. I will suffer. So I decided to stay, which ended up 
sadly being a two and a half year gap between visits back home. I did come back last year for the first time after COVID. But Yemen was a wonderful experience. You do live on compounds there. Here in Erbil, I live in my own apartment. In Yemen, you live on a compound. You live with your colleagues. You only see your colleagues. You're not allowed to do anything outside of the compound without permission and security approval. Thankfully, I did do a bit of moving around the country and got to see a lot. It, I worked on coffee programming while I was there. And for a hot minute, I was like, no, I'm going to leave the UN and I'm going to go become a professional coffee cupper. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I'm just going to become like an expert in coffee. Um, Look, considering where your career has taken you, it sounds to me like that was not off the cards and you probably would have, yeah, you're like, yeah, cool. I'll give that a crack. Like, love that. Was Yemen, is Yemen an unsafe place so like in Iraq we live freely in the north in Erbil in Baghdad everyone still lives on a compound Iraq at the moment it's in a sort of a stable position but I came right after the ISIS conflict ended and so it was a higher security um, situation then and we did travel in armored vehicles because the UN can be targeted as it represents the western world but living in Erbil we're okay the Kurdistan region of Iraq is stable and we move around in what we call quote unquote soft skins which means a normal car and good to know I've really learned a lot today did you ever feel unsafe or did you have you ever felt scared or yeah unsafe being over there no in Iraq one of the only times that I've ever been confronted with like potential risk was I remember we were driving in an area called Diyala in the south and there was a particular village that we'd visited to see some program activities and as we were leaving, it makes it sound scary if I say the details. But <laughs> when you travel in federal Iraq, you travel in an armored vehicle and you travel in a convoy. So you usually have a police escort and a military escort. So the biggest convoy I ever traveled in was 12 cars and we were two people. We were going to an area where there was still some potential ISIS activity. But it is surreal to think that I'm important enough to <laughs> warrant that amount of security. But one time a tire popped on the armored vehicle and these things weigh so much because they're like bulletproof. And you, you like the military and the guy, my security team for the UN, never seen people move faster in my life to get this armored vehicle jacked up to change this tire. We were in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even see anything, but it was just like this rush because I was just like, what is happening? They're like, don't get out of the vehicle, stay in the vehicle. So it can feel more intense than it is. Ultimately, there hasn't really been any issues for any UN staff members or NGO workers in a long time. Yeah, just super cautious. Yeah, it's about being cautious. If you do make silly decisions, like bad things can happen because it's a country that's been experiencing war for the better part of a century. So there are landmines in certain places and there is pockets of ISIS activity and there is intra-tribal conflict. There is political conflict. So it's all about understanding, knowing the context and making the right choices. Yeah. But it's an incredibly beautiful country, both the yeah. Arab part of Iraq and the Kurdish region of Iraq, Kurdistan region of Iraq. So rich in culture, incredibly beautiful people, so warm and so welcoming. And they, they want their, where they live to be a better place. But it's, it's not, Iraq is a complicated country yeah. in many ways. And it's just people don't understand because how can you? You just don't know. Like it's a perception. Your perception is your reality. Yeah, totally. And, that, and everyone thinks women here are always in headscarf and in a bayah. The only time I've ever had to wear a bayah in Iraq is when you go in, into a mosque, when you're going yeah. into a place that just um, So interesting. Prayer. And yeah. then Yemen, Yemen is different. You do have to wear an abaya and a headscarf pretty much everywhere you go. So when you fly in on the UN plane, all the women, they put on their abaya, they put on their headscarf. And it's just, if you didn't, it would be disrespectful. It's a respect you know, thing, yeah. Their, their belief, they are conservative and it's, you, know, you wouldn't go to any country and deliberately do something that's potentially offensive. And so it's just a step that you take. We lived on a compound in the office. We didn't have to wear it. But when we were outside meeting government, meeting partners, meeting beneficiaries, whatever it may be, you would wear your abaya and your headscarf. And so in a 
honestly was great because again, Aiden in the south of Yemen, super hot. So you'd wear your abaya and just your knickers underneath. Yeah. <laughs> Love that be for you. You think it's yeah. like super conservative, you're covered head to toe pretty much. And the nice breeze comes through and you're like, I don't have to wear real clothes. I'm just wearing yeah. this kind of long mumu, essentially. Actually, it's strategic. Yeah. Love totally. that. Totally. I can see why they do it. <laughs> and so your roles changed again. How many roles have you had across your time in Iraq and then in Yemen? And so is, took, is that what you're doing now? So I took a United Nations Development Program role when I first arrived, doing communications for one of their largest programs, mostly on livelihoods, like job-related activities and reconstruction, so rebuilding what was destroyed in the ISIS conflict. And then I left and went to Yemen and I was doing country office level communication. So that meant instead of working on one project, I worked across all programs and I was leading the communications team. So I had a team of five incredibly wonderful Yemeni colleagues and I made some dear friends. The fact that I got to visit coffee plantations and eat coffee cherries. And then I stayed in touch with this amazing trailblazing woman in Yemen, who is like one of the only women working high level in the coffee sector in a male-dominated sector. It's a huge thing in Yemen. And I was so inspired by her. And you just meet these incredibly tenacious women. It's humbling because you go, more or less for me, my career defines me. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But I am so blessed that I get to meet these incredible women. That's what I love is that I got to meet this incredible woman, Arzak, who is just doing it for the girls in in Yemen. Yeah, the gals. Talk about it because I just go, it's so inspiring. They're so amazing. Yeah. Can I just say throughout this whole interview, you keep just talking about this person has inspired me or this amazing person and I'm still friends with them and it sounds like you're incredibly connected. You champion so many people around you and have so many beautiful things to say. But God, you are so inspiring to listen to your story. And I have no doubt like you have inspired so many other people throughout your career without even realizing like your sister reaching out to me she was like she just has such an incredible story to tell you need to chat to this girl so I just hope that you feel that and that people say that to you because you're sitting here championing everyone else but holy shit you've done a lot in your career and I just am so like blown away do you actually look back and go wow how Probably not enough. Like I I am my own biggest critic. I think we all are. And I think that gives us more ambition because we're just like always trying to, as I said, like trying to prove something. You're just trying to be the best that you can be. And sometimes you don't even know why. I don't know that we can always put our finger on it. It's just, I just have to keep going. Yeah. A lot of people say to me like, why do you do so much? You need to chill. You need to have time for yourself. And then I have, to be completely honest, I've made myself sick like I've made myself physically sick trying to do too much and that's when you really do get that reality check of okay I do have to slow down I can't physically all of it and I think that goes back to just again yeah I don't know like it's being from the central coast I think yeah always knew that central coast would always be home and I owe so much to my parents for being incredibly supportive and I owe so much to Narita and my brother. Yeah. And I will get emotional because I am an emotional God, person. don't. I will too. God, I know. I am like listening to this going, yeah. No, it is home, so home is home and that's where we come yeah. from and how we became who we are. But I think I always knew I wanted to leave and I always have been like, I need to go out and explore things. And I don't know that I'll ever be fully satisfied. I think it's really hard to feel fully satisfied. We do what we can. But I guess I just, instead of looking maybe slightly outside of the perimeter of the coast, I just went, screw it. I'm just going to go <laughs> to whatever country will take me. Yeah. Uh, and you are the I definition did. of the world is your oyster, literally. You're like nothing, just despite being incredibly unsure or scared or not knowing what was coming. You were, Yeah, you just, you've just gone ahead and done it anyway. And I think that is so inspiring. And it just goes to show that, You've just got to put yourself out there and just see what happens and still be yourself. Like you are in, what is your current role at the moment? Yeah, so I left the UN after around seven years, partly due to the desire to see what it was like with the NGO world. 
Partly because, unfortunately, and I think that everyone faces this and everyone probably has a story, but I had some bad encounters. I did have some negative experiences with supervisors, no fault of my own. And I just went, I don't want to work in an environment where I don't feel supported. Mm -hmm. So despite having some great colleagues, I took that step and was like, okay, fine, I can look for this elsewhere. And it was a lot of processing, a lot of tears again, because everyone at least in this sector, sees the United Nations as the pinnacle of their success. And people work for years in the NGO world to try and get into the UN world. And I somehow fumbled my way into starting in the reverse. And so people called me crazy. They were like, you're stupid. You're crazy. Why doing this? But thankfully, president and now my boss of the current organization that I work for reached out to me and said, I love your profile. Do you want to come and work for us? Um, And it was back in Kurdistan. And my partner is here. And so it were, there was added incentive to come back to Kurdistan yeah. to be with him. But this organization is women-founded, women-led, and around 80% of our staff are women. And we focus largely on gender-based violence, human trafficking, and mental health. And so for me, I've already mentioned my therapist, who I adore, big champion for mental health yeah, <laughs> and for women. And so... Being able to work for an organization, again, that like very much aligned with kind of a lot of my beliefs and the position that I wanted to take on a lot of issues in a country that I adore, in a city that I love, was just, this is my opportunity to go get that experience that I want in an NGO. So I came and joined the team. I'm the head of communications at Seed Foundation, and it's a wonderful organization. I'm, I think everyone that works there is just like invested in the vision that this organization has. And yeah, I just, I do a lot. I work a lot. I work long hours, but when you love it, it's makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and when you have your support system around you. So, you know, yeah. I have my partner, but I also have some amazing friends here that provide that reprieve when you have a long day and are there to support you when you have tough time. So yeah, that's where I am now. And, and how long have you been in that role for? Just over a year. So it's been a learning curve because it is a huge shift coming from the United Nations into the NGO world. But we're doing some incredible stuff. We're basically trying to make the situation better for everyone that lives in Kurdistan in some way. And I'm a foreigner and my Kurdish is average at best. I'm trying to improve. I am taking lessons. But most of the women that work in our organization are from here. And me being able to, again, maybe this goes back to what you said, but me being able to support an initiative where I'm basically able to dedicate my skills to helping other women do the things that they need to do to help their society is like kind of the cool thing. So, yeah, so empowering for them and for you. So cool. And in a place that I love, like Kurdistan yeah. and Kurdish culture, as I said, it's not very well known. I'm sure many people that listen to the podcast will be like, what is Kurdistan and what is Kurdish? Because I think a lot of people in Australia, Iraq is Iraq, and they don't realize there's different languages yeah. and different ethnic groups here. So yeah, I'm very lucky that I found my way here and I'm doing what I'm doing. Have you had the opportunity to see that correlated into real life? Have you got to meet some of the people that have been impacted by the work that you're doing? Yeah, usually it brings me to tears. <laughs> in communication, as I said, sort of part of the role is we meet with our clients, most of our clients that seed are survivors of gender-based violence, whether that means in a domestic environment or a survivor of conflict-related sexual violence. So that could be those that were affected under ISIS, unfortunately. And so I've met these, these women that have been through, you know, what no one could ever imagine. And I remember talking to a journalist friend once, she's based here, and she was like, it's really hard when you're interviewing someone who's been through really deep trauma you want to keep the focus on them. The story is their story and it might be really heartbreaking and you might want to cry, but then it kind of flips the script and it comes about you because you're crying and then they mm. want to comfort you. And so I sit there sometimes and I'm literally like swallowing my tears talking to these women that have just been exposed to like abhorrent things and have survived and they tell you how they survived. There's this beautiful story that came out a few years ago and it was about a woman who She was like a famous kind of TikTok makeup person. And then she was under ISIS rule and all this sort of stuff happened. And so she continued doing these videos where she would do her makeup on TikTok. But behind her, there's rockets 
and explosions happening, but it was the only thing that kept her sane. And so she did it. And now she looks back at it and it's, you could do a throwaway comment about makeup and materialism or whatever, but it's also a passion thing. And it's also about uplifting yourself and making yourself feel better when there's not that much else to feel better about. Yeah. And find these women have these amazing coping mechanisms. And then for my organization to be able to then support these women, however they need, whether it be through mental health support, financial assistance, helping them get back on their feet in in some way or another, that feels really good to be able to tell that story. It truly is an incredibly inspirational opportunity to be able to speak to these individuals and to be able to tell their story how they want their story to be told. Yeah. And make a difference, like knowing that your job is helping them in some could keep talking for so long. And I just don't want to dismiss what an epic role you're currently doing. But what do you think is next for you? Because nothing's (laughs) out of the question for you based off this chat. I feel like you just grab any opportunity that comes your way. Are you feeling like you're really loving and really happy with what you're doing? Or or are you thinking in the back of your mind, where do I want to go next? I'm always doing that and I don't know how to turn it off, which is a little bit of a, an issue, I think, in the sense. Blessing I, and a curse. Yeah, totally. So I am always thinking about that, but I'm trying at least now being a few years older, I'm trying to be a bit more wise and kind of go, okay, one thing at a time, Marley, don't need to do all 10 things at once. So at the moment I'm finishing my second master's. And I'm, As you I'm do. Cool. <laughs> This one was more of a passion project. My first one, honestly, I, the same vibe as I told you before, I'm not really sure what I actually use from that master's. So this one is more of a passion project and I'm really looking forward to the thesis that is going to come with it. And I also want to complete my yoga teacher training, but that's also a huge time investment. I guess there's also a lot of travel in there. And then I do at some point, I want to go back to improve my knowledge on coffee. <laughs> I love this. I just love this. You're like, anything so goes. Like, full believer in lifelong learning, honestly. I do think that we're always learning, whether it's formal or informal. And if you find that you're passionate about something, just because you're older, and God forbid 31 is not old, but mm-hmm. just because you're older doesn't mean that you can't enroll and do something. I'm so proud mm-hmm. of my sister for recently enrolling and starting her university degree. And she actually was inspired by your podcast. She was thinking of it and then she listened to the podcast and she was like, you know what? Like being a mature age student is not that bad. Um, so it was super cool. Oh, that's going to make me cry. Oh my God. I'm going to have to tell Kelly about that. That is awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but I am going to ask you two more questions before we wrap up. And the first one is, what would you say the Marley that was starting her communications degree like all those years ago? God, I obviously, I think I was probably a little afraid when I was first enrolled, but I guess I think I'd just say you're worth it maybe because yeah. I think for all those years, for all those opportunities, that imposter syndrome or that sense, it was a joke every time that I received a job offer. I think we are really self-deprecating and I think it is more of a trait of women, unfortunately, but we just sometimes forget that we're actually awesome. And I think that's what your podcast is all about, right? Showing that we're all doing, no matter what, everyone is doing something amazing, contributing in some way. And I think it's that reminder that you are worth it, not to sound too much like a a makeup ad, but no, it's so true. Yeah. That's what I think I would say, because I think I was, incredibly self-deprecating for just the longest time and um, still am. Which is cra- it's crazy to me because listening to all the incredible things that you've done, despite feeling that way, you've gone ahead and done it, but there's still that part of you that it was because of all the people that supported me and it was because of this. And it's actually, Marley, like you 100%, you're the driver of your own seat and you have gotten to the point that you have because of all of your hard work. And it's just been so lovely that you've been able to have other people to support you and cheer you along the way but I am just so in awe of like everything that you've done that is awesome okay and last question such a broad question to ask but if you had a like a book that you would recommend someone to read what would it be it's a hard one because I read very dense nonfiction. 
So it's not, I, people, some people always laugh at my selection of books because they're like, you go to bed at night, you read a book, you want to switch off, right? I think one of the books that probably most recently had an impact on me was their, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, um, which is by an incredible journalist, Christine, who she traveled the world looking at women that were affected by conflict-related sexual violence. And so each kind of chapter of the book looks at sort of those issues, but also looks at the women on the other side that have then gone on to support other women and make a case to end this kind of violence against women and stop weaponizing rape and stop weaponizing some of these horrific treatments of women as a weapon of war and as a weapon of conflict. It's, it is a very dense book. It will make you cry, but I do think it is an incredibly well-written, incredibly profound book that if you do have the opportunity to read, is definitely worth it. If this conversation is anything to go by, you do go against the brain. So <laughs> love that book recommendation. Thank you so much for your time. This has been such an awesome, interesting chat. So Thanks I for listening to another episode of Yeah the, the Gals. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe or follow us on Instagram well. at Yeah the Gals Podcast. Thank you so much. And remember, gals, you bloody got this.